I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in our series, Exodus. At some point in Exodus, the action suddenly gives way to long descriptions of interior decoration and holy fashion design. Is the second act of this ancient scroll antiquated beyond relevance, or can we learn something just as crucial about God from priestly robes as we do from the crossing of the Red Sea? A few months ago, I got a letter from a guy who had some similar scenes in his life story. In the 90s, this guy had played in this uh, influential but kind of little-known band called Luxury, and after his stint in that band was over, he became, of all things, a priest. In fact, most of that band became priests in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and we hadn't known each other me and this guy, but somehow he'd heard uh, a little bit about my story and about our church, and so he wrote a letter and sent this lovely encouragement and just said hi, and I thought, wow, here's another dude from a similar kind of world, and, and like me, like us, still following Jesus, still serving in the church, and I was so touched by his letter that I wanted to know more about what he was up to, so I looked up his church online. And on the church's website, there was some kind of like a routine video update that he'd posted to his congregation. Uh, I hit play, the video opened with a greeting from this dude uh, that has actually been passed on through generations of certain church traditions as like a hello. Uh, In many Catholic and Orthodox traditions, there are all kinds of call-response greetings used by church communities throughout the year, unique to specific seasons. So you have call-response greetings for the season of Advent, for example, or for Lent, or greetings used just throughout the rest of the year. So in this video, the guy, as a hello, began by saying, smiling into the camera, glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. And it wasn't some kind of epic announcement, it was just a church update. But I was suddenly overwhelmed with gratitude when I saw this thing. The best way I can put it is that I was in that moment uh, deeply honored to share the way of Jesus and this movement called the church with some stranger on the other side of the country. Sitting alone in my office, I actually said it back, glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Because the tradition of greetings kind of faded and all but vanished from American Protestantism. I don't know if you've noticed. That's us, by the way. We're American Protestants. The only greeting that we have left, and just barely, is the Pascal greeting at Easter, which goes, he is risen. He is is risen? Yeah, you're aware of it. And even that one, for many of us, feels kind of quirky, or we say it somewhat ironically, because it sounds funny, almost like we're tapping into some old church thing that we don't really know about. But the tradition of greetings dates all the way back to the first century and the earliest church, really, where the first simplest and arguably most beautiful and defiant greeting and creed was the very simple, Jesus is Lord. The first Christians would say this to one another as kind of like a pledge of allegiance, as an oath and as a creed. A creed, we believe, that was a deliberate affront to another call-response creed of the ancient world, which was Caesar is Lord. So by saying Jesus is Lord to one another, the early Christians were saying even more than that. They were saying, I belong to the church. I reject all other allegiances and lords. In C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, uh, really? For The Horse and His Boy, of all of them? Yeah, okay, sure. 
Uh, it's all right. The, the, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, big Narnia fan over here, but the horse and his boy is not my personal favorite. But in the horse and his boy, the, the southern kingdom of the Calermen requires its citizens, when mentioning their ruler, the Tisroc, to pledge, may he live forever. And then this boy named Shasta meets a Narnian horse, which means it can talk. Spoilers for the horse and his boy. The horse is called Bree, and the horse mentions the ruler, the Tisroc, and doesn't say, may he live forever. And Shasta, the boy, is shocked, and he asks the horse, hey, you forgot to say, may he live forever. And the horse says, I'm a free Narnian. Why should I talk slaves and fools talk? I don't want him to live forever, and I know that he's not going to live forever whether I want him to or not. <laughs> Which is another way of saying, Caesar is Lord? No, Jesus is Lord. Over time, the creedal greetings became the Apostles' Creed, which eventually, with the help of the official church councils, became the Nicene Creed, and they became seasonal greetings and creeds, like glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. This is a boxer called Vasily Lomachenko. Ahead of his championship fight against Devin Haney, ESPN sent a documentary film crew to film his training camp. And as a member of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Lomachenko's preparation including all, included all the ordinary stuff that you expect to see, uh, you know, skip rope and punching bags, that kind of thing. But there was also footage of ornate sanctuaries and Lomachenko carrying a candle down an aisle lined with icons. If you grew up in attrition, in a tradition without candles and icons, maybe the whole scene would look really weird to you, or maybe it even looks off. A few years ago, I stood in Jerusalem inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, watching travelers weep and kneel before the stone of anointing, which tradition holds is where Jesus' body was prepared for burial by Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. The authenticity, the authenticity of the stone is obviously disputed, but that hasn't stopped it from becoming this beautiful place of reverent observance. The whole church, in fact, uh, touristy and strange though it may be, is beautiful and awe-inspiring, a place of prayer and worship, as much as a destination for vacationers with snapping camera shutters. And as I watch these tourists bow and touch and kiss the stone, one of my traveling companions from America, a Protestant like me, shook his head and rolled his eyes. And I remember specifically, he said, it's not the place. He said, it's not the building, it's not the icons, and it's not the stone. God is everywhere. And I remember thinking in that moment that I, as a Protestant, had been taught the same kind of thing, basically. But there was a time, centuries prior, where maybe all the pageantry of candles and icons and sacred stones would seem decidedly less alien to so many Christians, really, to the church. But the church is full of people, and people are broken, so it has, over time, splintered again and again and again. The Eastern Orthodox Church split from the Roman Catholic Church in the Great Schism, of 1054, Protestantism was born from the Reformation of the 16th century, and the splits themselves aren't necessarily evil or even bad, though you could argue that lots of bad things happen during or because of them. But our church is a Protestant church for a reason, and though we're probably, I guess, less militant than some other Protestant expressions, we happily borrow from Catholic and Orthodox traditions and theologians, but we've landed here in the Protestant world for a reason, and if you're like me, then maybe you grew up in the Protestant tradition. I know a couple of you didn't, but I think a lot of us have. And in the Protestant tradition, especially if that's where you've spent most of your church experience, then you think, well, sure, we have songs. 
That's something. And, and maybe even a painting or the occasional stained glass window. But we don't really know about things like icons or seasonal creeds or call response greetings. And that, I would argue, can be a problem. Take Exodus, for example. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. We have been studying the second scroll of the Hebrew Scriptures all summer long. Act 1 of the Exodus narrative, if you uh, missed it on Peacock. Sure, Levi says. Yeah, <laughs> Levi kind of thing. Um, but all that stuff, Egypt, Pharaoh, the plagues, the shifts abruptly. Once again, here's a quote from scholar N.T. Wright. He said that there are two liberation journeys in Exodus, the first to get Israel out of slavery, and the second to get the slavery out of Israel. This is neither the first nor the last we've read this quote throughout the series because as the tone of the story suddenly shifts from like the memorable high-action locusts and splitting seas, the narrative arc can seem incongruent if you don't remember this fact, that there are two liberation journeys. One, to get Israel out of slavery. Two, to get the slavery out of Israel. God brings Israel out of Egypt, but years of bondage and their lingering effects across generations don't just dissolve by simply relocating people. You need an entirely new way of life. Everything has to change. So Act 2 is about getting the slavery out of Israel. Now, last week, my friend Gavin Bennett was here unpacking the idea in depth. If you weren't here, go back and catch up on the podcast. It was actually his uh, first sermon, which is a little frustrating because it uh, was really good. And I <laughs> says to myself, I says, oh, that's not how I remember doing that. Uh, but, you know, it's not a contest. Anyway, tonight, the plan is to zoom in on some of the particulars of how God goes about changing everything for Israel. Things are about to get weird. Watch this. Stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of the inspired scriptures. Exodus 28, beginning in verse 1. God says to Moses, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. Not just anyone, but a craftsman. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six 
on the other to represent all 12 tribes, the entire family of Israel. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Not just anyone, a craftsman, an artist. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before Yahweh the Lord. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. So here's the thing about reading the Bible. If you've ever done like the, the Bible in a year plan or just picked it up and said, I'm actually going to read this thing cover to cover. If you start reading in Genesis with a plan to move just you know, from left to right through the whole thing, you might be surprised by the first long stretch and think, hey, this Bible's not so bad because mostly uh, it's pretty interesting. Masterful storytelling, beautiful, strange, sad, upsetting. It's all there in Genesis and really up to the first act of Exodus until about here uh, when God, the artist, chooses to involve human collaborators in the hyper-specificity of his creative vision to create a new people and a new way of life. And it's not just outfits. Before this, in chapters 25 through 27, detailed instructions on the construction and aesthetic specifications of something called the tabernacle, this incredible tent configuration that will house the actual presence of God himself. God is really serious about exactly what it should look like, who should work on it, and why. And then in chapter 28, what we just read, you get the same kind of artistic, visionary detail for the priest's garments, uniquely appointed individuals to work within the tabernacle, the priests, they need appropriately uh, matching outfits. They need to be dressed for the occasion. Chapter 29, then, is all about the priest's ordination ceremony and the morning and evening sacrificial ceremonies. In 30 and 31, you get to read all the stuff that's in the tabernacle and then a retelling of the whole conversation. The tabernacle, even the outfits, are overflowing with all kinds of allusions to, references to Eden as God curates a space where, like Edom, he is, and his people are, and heaven can overlap with earth. God's space and people's space together. Look at this again in verse 6. Make the ephod of gold, a specific material mentioned by God. In verse 9, take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, which would, as a reader of the Hebrew Scriptures, Flash your mind backward to Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. That's where we're going. And he put the man he had formed in the garden. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food, in the middle of the garden with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now listen, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters, and it goes on until you read, there is gold, the gold of that land is good, aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. In fact, this is the first and last mention of onyx until you get to Exodus and read that onyx stones are to be used on the ephod. God is bringing the goodness of the garden and braiding it together with the children of Israel so that their identity becomes interwoven with his plan to set the world to rights and to make heaven and earth one once again. Remember, the story of your people, if you are an Israelite, is having forfeited the goodness of the garden because of rebellion and foolishness. And then, with spectacular pageantry, God is now putting Eden back on his people 
And they don't deserve it. Just as God gave Adam and Eve clothes before they left the garden, he now makes for his beloved ornate, beautiful clothes to symbolically undo the shame and dishonor of the fall. He specifically says, for their honor, they will be dressed like this. And God's presence is now coming back to dwell amongst his people when they had lost his presence in the Garden of Eden. Now, don't forget, at this point in the story, God's people aren't doing so hot. They had forgotten his name. They forgot who God was. They had expressed persistent doubts about God's goodness and his promise to liberate them out of Egypt. They didn't believe Moses, even when stuff really started going. And then when they were freed from Egypt, they complained about it almost constantly. And now nothing's changed. They're still not doing so great. God is painstakingly designing an incredible work of art, a love letter to robe them in his promises and come near to them in spectacular fashion so that it would surround them. When I was uh, on the high school dating scene, (laughs) you like that transition? That's right, yep. When the boys uh, were ready to get serious, we had something called burnt edges. Y'all know about burnt edges? You gotta have a poet soul for burnt edges. Uh, (laughs) What you do is you write something lovely for that special lady in your life on a small piece of paper. This strikes me as something Tav has done at some point in his life. So you write something for that special lady in your life on a piece of paper, then you take a match, and um, uh, a time long forgotten. I don't know why that would be the case, but it gave them like beautiful time, still time. Y'all aren't dead, still time. Uh, Van City youth guys, take note, burnt edges. Now, I can't lie to you guys, uh, my wife Abby was the grateful recipient of burnt edges uh, early on in our romance, circa 2005. And here we are, still, still doing it, still in love. Am I insinuating a correlation? Is there any data on divorce rates and lack of burnt edges? Do we need it? You know, figure that one out for yourself. Uh, but when Abby and I were dating, we actually lived on opposite sides of the country, so we mailed a lot of packages back and forth, and we burned CDs for one another. That was the thing back then. I wrote her songs, and she wrote me letters. Heck, I still write her love letters on a semi-regular basis, and she wrote me a humdinger on my birthday. I don't mind telling you. More than a few tears, and no burned edges at all. That's the power of those words. My, <laughs> my point is that we communicated our affection for and admiration of one another with tactile gestures, things that we could touch and see and keep as we thought of one another and and what we mean to one another. And now, here's where stuff gets real. I realize that not necessarily everyone expresses or receives meaningful communication through elaborate creative gestures and symbolism and imagery, but God does. And we'll talk about this more in an upcoming series pretty soon here. I've got a whole book about it coming out, but Throughout the story of the Bible, God constantly speaks to, appears to, communicates, and comes near to human beings. How? Does God just implant sentences into their heads? Does he use just like the plain, ordinary, audible language for clarity's sake? It'd certainly be easier to understand him if he did, but he doesn't. 
God actually prefers elaborate, wild, vivid, beautiful, even at times disturbing imagery to make himself known to human beings. Here in Exodus, God is bringing a people that were, until recently, enslaved out of centuries of trauma and into a new family of loving goodness. And his first gestures of arranging this new way of life is with artistic detail so specific with so much elaborate grandeur that it takes several chapters just to record the details. And remember, in the scriptures, these are poured out by the Spirit of God himself. Not a single word is wasted. The sacrificial codes to which God called Israel were built around powerful external symbols in which the people of God would steep themselves to constantly tell and retell and live out the story of sin and salvation from things like burning incense to strange, disturbing things to us like sprinkling animal blood on an altar. Profound, visceral sign acts that afforded God's people artistic rituals for living into and out of the story of what God was and is doing to redeem the whole world. And I'm not just talking about Exodus. It gets crazier from here. Keep reading this thing. The creativity of God, his emphasis on aesthetics, on symbolism, the beautiful and the macabre, audio, visual, sensory extravaganza. It makes our most eccentric and particular artists, you know, the Van Goghs and Warhols of the world or our, you know, J.D. Salingers and Bill Watersons, they look dull and unimaginative and compromised by comparison. And this carries over into the New Testament with Jesus, who prefers vivid parables over ordinary teaching and into the wild visions of the Holy Spirit in the early church in the book of Acts and on through the letters of Paul, combusting in the surreal nightmare redemption vision called the Apocalypse, Apocalypse of John or the book that we call Revelation. And even if you didn't have all that, the literary construction of the Bible itself is a work of art that boggles the minds of those who study it, whether they are Christian or not. And for centuries, that is the rich history of the Christian movement stretching all the way back to Genesis 1-1 to which all disciples of Jesus belonged. Walk through a cathedral in Paris where the architecture itself is designed to tell the story of God or visit the basilica in southern France that holds what is purported to be, I'm not kidding, the skull of Mary Magdalene in a reliquary sculpted to look like her head. Or don't even buy a plane ticket. Just drive out to Mount Angel, Oregon and visit the Abbey where you can walk uphill all the way to the Abbey visiting the stations of the cross on your way to afternoon prayer with the monks and hear them sing through the psalms together. But then, for some of us anyway, yada, 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 the Great Schism, yada, 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 Protestant Reformation, and here we are with little more than songs written by usually one of two megachurch worship conglomerates and a TED Talk on Sunday. And now, here's where I'm going with all that. For weeks now, I have been arguing, and, and really just with scholars and theologians much smarter than I am, that the Exodus story, in many ways, is the Bible's story. It's about God's blessing, an evil oppressor, and a rescue mission. When you start reading about 
gold and onyx ephods and page after page about ribbons and sculptures and pomegranates. How is that our story? That's the question tonight. And maybe, more poignantly, um, that's the problem for tonight. We, as modern Western Protestant Christians, don't have many shelves for the bells and whistles and pageantry of other church traditions. But it can put us in a compromising position as we work to understand the scriptures and our place in them and God himself. We don't sprinkle blood in temples anymore, sure. And we, as Protestants, tend to have fewer creative rituals by which we might immerse ourselves in God's story. We're, we're trying to make moves to correct some of that in our community. Not that we're, like, we're, we're perfect or that we've cracked the code or that we're any better than any other church. We're just aware that something is missing, and we would like to change that. So we're working on it. But look at it this way. Even now, in our stripped-down, no-frills corner of church history, we do have two powerful rituals commissioned by Jesus himself that we observe regularly. One of them took place, as it often does, at the outset of the gathering, communion, the Lord's Supper, during which, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, we, we remember the death of Jesus, not just by thinking about it in our minds, but by enacting a powerful symbol. And it, frankly, it's a grotesque one at that, which God subverts and makes beautiful. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The cup represents his spilled blood. And then we eat and drink his body and his blood in communion with the living God who makes himself known to us in self-sacrificial love. My God, that is good stuff. And it means something to Jesus that we do it again and again. He told us to do it. The second ritual we'll observe in just a few minutes. It's the sacred ritual of baptism. In baptism, a person goes under the waters, which is a powerful visual symbol of entering death, and then you are raised, so to speak, with Jesus to new life. In baptism, our story is joined to the story of Jesus and to the church and in celebratory spectacle before the community of God's people. And what's more, the early church, quite frankly, had no paradigm of discipleship that did not commence with baptism. The commission then was repayment of Jesus the King for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. And he did not say, repent and have a time of personal reflection. Of course he can, but these creative rituals and symbols mean something to God. And he intends to change who we are through them, not just lines of information in our head or a passive social experience, but through powerful symbolic ritual. And yet, here we sit, week after week. Maybe, for some of you, on some Sundays maybe, you feel stiff, arms crossed, mumbling through songs, and maybe you eat the bread and drink the cub with your mind elsewhere, or maybe you sit through listening prayer, wondering what's for dinner, and we can say to ourselves and one another, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm not the artsy type. I don't really care for the spectacle and the razzle-dazzle. Curating emotional experiences through sound and atmosphere feels manipulative to, me, manipulative to me. Or, you know, I'm more of a thinking person or a books person. I'm not the creative type. Well, with all due respect, you can meet God in a book. Absolutely. 
I do all the time. You can meet God quietly in your mind, absolutely, but not all of him. And if you don't believe me, go through your Bible and cut out every crazy-sounding art installation from God, be it earthly or cosmic. Remove every poem, every strange symbol, every flaming lion head and water dragon. Strip out the talking animals and instructions for carvings and robes and bones that have muscles and sinews form around them and get up and walk around. Censor the visions and the strange interdimensional beings. Just leave the ordinary, no-frills, plain speech lessons and see how much Bible you have left. <laughs> to attempt to truly meet and know God in good old-fashioned book learning alone, to imagine prayer as information strings in the mind and nothing else, is, quite frankly, a fool's errand, hopelessly precluded, because God wants more. The new way of life he has in mind for you, drawing you out of the old way of things, begins in the sacred symbolic ritual of baptism, and it continues in sacred symbolic ritual through communion, week after week after week. It is steeped in images and poems and songs and symbols. See, another side effect of being raised in a tradition with little to no value for symbols and ceremony is that what little ritual we have left can easily be sucked dry because we're suspicious, especially when and if it starts to seem excessively ornamental or it makes us feel foolish or vulnerable because it's outside of our ordinary expression or our comfort zone, and we start to assume that the primary or even only way to relate to and interact with God is going to be a quiet time with the Bible and a few worship songs and a sermon on Sunday, maybe a conversation in our small group time. And don't get me wrong, we're obviously big, big believers in all those things. You do meet with God in the text, in worship, in teaching, in your fancy community, but we also meet with God in art and atmosphere and aesthetic excellence, in symbols and rituals and poems and creeds and that are precious to disciples of Jesus around the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what do we do? Well, quite frankly, it depends on how this hits you. Some of you were with me 20 minutes ago. You didn't need all this. Uh, you're all in. Maybe some of you, you know, the idea of sacred aesthetics of meeting God in art and ceremony, it seems maybe a bit stranger or, or at least beyond your experience. And that's totally fine. This is not to make anyone feel silly or ridiculous. Again, most of us, I think, probably uh, spent most of our church experience in the Protestant tradition. And so this is the hand we've been dealt, and it's not all bad. So what would it look like to open yourself up to God's value for sacred aesthetics and practices and symbols? in your own sacred space with Jesus, yes. Maybe more than Bible information and just asking God for things. What if you began each morning by reciting the Apostles' Creed or, or the Nicene Creed? Or, or what if you sat with a worship song before you opened the Scriptures, even if you're not a worship songs kind of person, to attune your heart to the presence of God before you meet Him in the text? I have a whole playlist of beautiful ambient and instrumental music that I use when I practice contemplation. It really helps uh, with the focus as well. During Advent, just this last season, some of my scheduled times of devotion involved simply meditating on paintings 
like Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. Uh, oh, well, Rembrandt fans. Uh, what was early? Narnia, Horse and His Boy, Rembrandt. Well, same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, beautiful and filled with all kinds of details that harken back to not just Jesus' parable, but the story of God and the scriptures. Or another one was uh, Sir Frank Dixie's The Two Crowns, in which uh, this triumphant warrior king's gaze is caught by Jesus on the cross and his face suddenly becomes troubled. Or, or what if you sat with a single psalm, reading slowly, imaginatively, Bible scholars like to talk about biblical poetry like a, a multifaceted diamond. You turn it from different angles and see different things in it. More than your personal time, though, what does it look like to embrace the sacred ceremony of this space? That's what Levi was getting at when we began our time together this evening. To do more than simply attend or you know, stand passively and let church become a, a service provided to the consumer. Church, and by that I mean the Sunday gathering in particular, is itself a, a sacred ritual and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we often can't help but live it out as a social event because that's the air that we breathe. We are Americans. We're consumers by nature. And sure, maybe, you know, we'll respond to what God is saying and doing here, but in our own way and on our own time. And maybe we would do more than stand solemnly in worship. Maybe we'd be more expressive, but, you know, that's just not our thing. Or maybe we would kneel when we feel that push from the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we would dance if we didn't feel silly. Or maybe we'd lift our hands. Or, or maybe we would come forward and ask for prayer or cry out in celebration or weep and lament. But that's just not how we would like to meet with God. Okay, but how does God want to meet with you? I've always been terribly allergic to the herd mentality. As a southern kid, being, being told to something that I have to do a certain way simply because that's the thing that you have to do a certain way provoked me to rebellion, not awe. You know, we take our hats off inside buildings. Why? Because we do. Oh, well, then I refuse. You know, that was a real crusader for freedom over here. Uh, and I can see now, honestly, the tragedy of my importing that apprehension into the church. Even my little Protestant corner of it, rituals for ritual's sake, no. Fake, empty, dead, that is how I felt for years. What I couldn't see then was, yes, rituals for ritual's sake are dead, but the church's rich history of elaborate aesthetic spectacle as spiritual practice is anything but ritual for ritual's sake. We are being invited into the heart of God, his personhood, who he is, and how he understands us and the world as an artist, as a father, and as the creator God. I am not qualified to stand before God and say, mm, not me, something else please, because he made all this an icon, or, or recite the Apostles' Creed, or when I cheer and shamly, or when I lift my voice or my arms and worship or dance or play an instrument, and the world and redemptive history itself. And I can see that as early as in the beginning God created, and even in the delicate details of robes and tabernacles and rituals and 
onyx stones carved with the names of God's children. If this is who God is on some fundamental level, then I want to meet him there and know him better. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to guide us into greater faithfulness. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.